Hello, welcome to Caregiver's Haven, a podcast helping families who are caregivers of a loved one with a mental illness gain peace of mind. Even though this is a podcast focused on family caregivers of the mentally ill, much of the discussion can be helpful to any caregiver. Your host is Sandra. She is a family caregiver sharing her lived experiences and hopes to provide education, support, and resources to other families. Hey caregivers, how are you today? I'm happy to be here and I hope I'm hoping that you are all taking some time to rest and relax and rejuvenate. You know that we can't continue to take care of our loved ones if we're not taking care of ourselves. We can't serve from an empty vessel. Today's show, I am so excited. We have Dr. Mitchell on and I, I'm just really excited to have her. She is um, she's a senior clinical pharmacist over at Riverside University Health System. She's also the residency, residency director and an adjunct assistant clinical professor over at University of the Pacific, the Thomas J. Long School of Pharmacy and Health Services. She's a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin with her bachelor's in chemistry, followed by her PharmD from the University of the Pacific Thomas J. Long School of Pharmacy and Health Services. She completed her first year residency at pharm- and pharmacy practice at New York Harbor VA Medical Center in New York before completing her second year residency as psychiatric pharmacist at the VA um, down in San Diego. After residency, she joined the faculty at Long Island University in Brooklyn, New York, where she taught didactically as well as managed a Coumadin clinic there. And she rounded on the mental health floor as well as the geriatric floor, all while precepting pharmacy students. She now practices at the Riverside University Health System Medical Center as a senior clinical pharmacist where she has worked with the county's mentally ill for over 10 years, both at the medical center and at the mental health facility. She is the residency program director for RUHS at um, the second year residence of the psychiatric pharmacy program. And additionally, she precepts students from a variety of colleges, as well as first year and second year residents. Welcome, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. So um, for all of you caregivers out there, I met Dr. Mitchell back, I think it was back in February. And it's interesting because I'm a registered nurse. I've been working, I was working at RUHS before I retired for almost 30 years, but I had never met her. (laughs) But it's because she's mostly over at the, um, I was mostly in the neonatal ICU, which is a little closed little environment. So I didn't see a whole lot of people. Um, and then I was working over in the IT department. So we never really crossed paths, but I was excited to meet her. And where I met her was our family advocacy program here at the county for the mentally ill um, has throughout the year, they have a meet the pharmacist, meet the doctor, meet the therapist for family caregivers and for family support. And I think NAMI and a couple of other places do it. And it's really, really cool because the families can actually ask the pharmacist face-to-face questions or the doctor or the therapist, whoever's there. And it's really helpful for them. And so I asked her to be on this program because, you know, in my when I go to support group or um, when I'm just talking with other family members, everyone always has questions about the medications. 
and the medications can be very, very scary. Um, I'm a registered nurse and some of them are still scary for me, even though I understand pharmacology, but a lot of, you know, so it's even more scary for families who don't understand it. So Dr. Mitchell, um, can you kind of start off? There was something that you talked about that I, that I didn't know about. Can you start off with telling us the training for a mental health pharmacist? Absolutely. So um, as you mentioned about some of my past training, so after um, we finish our undergrad and go to pharmacy school, um, we can do a residency. And so your first year of residency is really broad and is just in pharmacy practice alone, where you're kind of seeing all different aspects of pharmacy. And then your second year, typically you specialize. And so I was lucky enough to specialize in psychiatry um, down at the VA San Diego um, under quite a big group of board certified psychiatric pharmacists. Um, and so after that, as you mentioned, I kind of have been doing psych services since that point in time for a little over 12 years um, and really felt blessed that that's the path that my life was able to take me because um, this is absolutely my favorite people to do stuff with. Um, I, I think they're incredible. I think the meds that we have can really make a difference in somebody's life and um, get them living back as as normal of a life that, that we can get them to. Well, thank you. I'm sure all the family members appreciate that. Um, so I don't know if you guys heard, so they're, they're from a regular pharmacy school, there's an extra additional two years of training for the mental health pharmacist. And, you know, that was huge to me because um, mental illness is scary as it is, but just to know that the pharmacists who are, who are dealing with all these different variety of medications have extra training was, um, that was, that was huge for me and comforting for me too. Um, so a lot of people talk about meds and psych meds and psychotropic meds and mood disorders, and I'm sure it confuses a lot of the family members. So can you kind of, um, let us know the difference between, well, let us know what a psychotropic medication is, um, and sure. how they use the term mood, dis, uh, mood stabilizer, just kind of school us on that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, as we break down the medications that we use for patients who are living with mental illness, um, the general class of medication, so anything that's working on your brain would be called a psychotropic. So that could even be if you're using, um, sometimes we use Benadryl to help adjunctly or take along with some of the other medication. It might be calming, or you might be taking it for sleep, that and that realm is considered a psychotropic. So that's the really, really big, big, broad term. And then when we break that down, we go into some different pathways. So the first group that um, I think we see a lot of is the antipsychotics. And that considers kind of the old ones, like we hear of Haldol, those are your first generation. And then your second generation are some of the newer agents. Um, those would be like Abilify or Latuda, Risperidone. Those are things that we're seeing commercials for on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so those medications, historically, when we hear antipsychotic, we think, okay, they're used for psychosis, but they have really broadened what we use them for today. So we might use them for somebody who does have a disorder like schizophrenia and experiencing psychosis, or if you're experiencing psychosis with some of the other disorders like depression or um, bipolar disorder, but we also use it for 
um, patients who maybe aren't getting the full effects from their antidepressant. And so we can add some antipsychotics, specific antipsychotics on for that. It can be used for patients with bipolar disorder. Sometimes we use it for people who are experiencing really bad anxiety. Um, and sometimes we're using it for patients for kind of agitation, some other symptom control. But even though it sounds antipsychotic, we use it for huge reasons. Um, and then another big class that we think about within the psychotropic realm is our mood stabilizers. So some of those agents would include lithium or Depakote or carbamazepine. Now, besides lithium's the one clearly, we just pretty much use that as a mood stabilizer. But some of the other agents that we consider in this class are actually medication that um, we consider anti-epileptics. So they're medications that typically are used for somebody with seizures, but we found that they have worked really well with, med with mood stabilization as well. And then also in those realms, we talk about antidepressants, which we can use specifically just for depressive symptoms. Um, but sometimes we use antidepressants at small doses like mirtazapine to help get your appetite stimulated, or small doses of mirtazapine or trazodone can help you sleep. And then we also have our anti-anxiety meds, which um, could be things like your benzodiazepines or some of the other agents like hydroxyzine, which can help with the anxiety. But there's probably more to it. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the no. big groups. Yeah. And that, that, um, that helps me actually. And hopefully that helped our listeners too, because I know that I didn't realize, I thought, um, I didn't realize that antipsychotic and mood stabilizer, I didn't realize that they all came under the big umbrella of psychotropic medication. So that was, that was interesting for me. And I'm glad that you threw in some of the disease processes that they work for. Um, can you explain what psychosis is just in case there's someone out there who doesn't understand it? Absolutely. So psychosis can um, look a couple of different ways. You could have hallucinations, so, um, and I kind of describe psychosis just in general is your mind's playing tricks on you. It's your mind is seeing or hearing things or thinking things that really are not what's happening in reality. So it could be that you're hearing something, um, your auditory hallucination. So you're hearing something that's not there. You're seeing something that that's not there. Hallucinations could be any of your, um, it, it could be tactile. It could be that you feel something. So any of your senses, you could also have delusions. Um, and you can also, um, you know, feel like, I don't know, I, I won the lottery today and I bought $10 million house and that's where I'm going after I leave the hospital, even though that's really just not true. Um, and so some of those things can occur when you're in a psychotic state. And like I mentioned, um, we typically think of psychosis happening when you have schizophrenia. However, it does happen with other disease states as well. And so we do see it in people who have really severe depression. We do see it in patients who are in, in people who are experiencing bipolar disorder, either on their really, really high highs, but they can also see it in those lows. And we can see some of the psychosis, even people with certain types of anxiety or anxiety-like disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder, um, because it would it's not uncommon for pe people with who experience PTSD to have hallucinations. Yeah, and I, I actually experienced that um, with, with someone I knew, um, which I thought, I thought just like what you just said that um, 
that psychosis only happened with schizophrenia. Um, but this person was having a bad depression and actually started having symptoms of psychosis, which was um, really new for me. I didn't know that that could happen. So that, that was really interesting. Thank you for explaining that. Of course. So what, um, when they, so the antipsychotics can help with hallucinations and you said sometimes with sleep, um, and can they help with like, like people who are not, who haven't been able to like work or, or go back to school or things like that? So typically we, we talk about the, the mental illness of schizophrenia. There's two big classes of symptoms. They're your positive symptoms. There's things that kind of get added. So that would be the hallucinations or the delusions. And then the negative symptoms are the things we kind of take away. So it could be um, that they're kind of quieter. They might lack motivation. They might lack interest in doing a lot of the things they had interest in before. And unfortunately, the antipsychotics, the first generation, we're, we're pretty sure it's not going to help on those negative symptoms. So getting you up and going. Um, the second generation, there may be some benefit, but the predominant benefit is on the positive symptoms. So that's always something we want to keep an eye on. Um, we can try to do some other things, add some other agents, or find another agent that just kind of works better, gives you a little bit more of that motivation. But to date, we really don't have like a medication that is phenomenal at those negative symptoms. Okay. So... I know you mentioned um, one of the one of the questions, one of the things that a lot of family members talk about and are concerned about is how once their family member starts taking the medications, they're very, very um, sleepy, tired, um, just laying around. And I know it's been cause for contention in some families where one um, family member may think that the um, their loved one is being lazy but a lot of the medications can cause those symptoms. Is that correct? So, yeah, I, some of them absolutely can. Um, however, it could be the medication. It could be the combination of medications that they're put on. But the most important thing that we, we would do, first of all, if um, you know somebody experiencing mental illness said they're having a lot of problems, that they're sleeping all day, the first thing I would do is look at their current medications and determine, are we taking them at the right time of day? And is that the only time of day we can take them? So for instance, an example of this would be um, Depakote comes as two formulations. It comes as a formulation called delayed release or Depakote DR, typically considered regular Depakote, and Depakote ER or the extended release. Delayed release typically has to be taken twice a day where extended release only is taken at night. So somebody who's experiencing a lot of being really, really tired during the day, and we can consider that it might be due to getting that um, morning dose of Depakote, we may be able to convert them to the ER formulation and give them at night, which we want to sleep at night, and hope that that decreases a little bit of that um, sedation or being tired throughout the day. So that would be my very first step before I did anything else, consider changing the agent, um, is to look at what are we doing with the medications. Okay. And then, yeah, and then if you just determined like, okay, 
you know, they're doing really well, but let's say they're on um, olanzapine, Zyproxa, and we got them to only take it at bedtime now. That's perfect for them, but they're still really tired. We have, it's kind of a give or take. Are they able to function on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, and the answer probably is no, because we're saying they're so tired, they can't even get up and kind of function give or take with, how is that with their symptoms? So you might be able to try to slowly come off the meds and find that really nice little fine line where they have some motivation and not too tired, but at the same time, on enough medication that their um, mental health is also doing well. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I know that um, we, you know, we've, one of the frustrating things for us um, <clears throat> with one of our family members when things were new, and I've heard this, um, I hear this all the time in support groups with family members who are dealing with a new diagnosis, is how at first the medications, medications and or diagnosis can change quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And that was very frustrating for us because I'm like, you know, how come you can't give me a diagnosis, but even though the diagnosis is changing, the medication stayed the same. And they, and they told us that, um, what you've kind of touched on already, you know, they told us that a lot of the same medications are used for different, um, for different diagnosis, even though the diagnosis may change, you pretty much use the same medications, mm -hmm. which is like the antipsychotics. Um, so do you, do you hear that a lot? Do you hear a lot of family members who are, um, kind of puzzled by that, by the how it can take a lot of um, time before they can find an actual medication that is working for their family member. Absolutely. And, and that's um, been shown, that's just kind of across the board. We see that even in clinical trials that a lot of times it's not a one or done, you tried it and that's the agent you're going to be on for the rest of your life. And we would pray that that's what it is. But for most people, that's not the case. And there's kind of a couple different reasons for that. So if you have the diagnosis of um, schizophrenia, you typically have some of those hallucinations or delusions on a daily basis. Now, if you add on top of that one of the mood disorders, that becomes schizoaffective disorder. And you can either have bipolar type or mood dis or um, depressive disorder type of schizoaffective disorder. So how you're how your diagnosis could easily change is if you came in the first time and they had their mood was regular, um, which we would consider euthymic, it could look like a really clean picture of just schizophrenia. But if I see you again in two months and now you're in your mood has changed and um, where it looks like maybe you have bipolar disorder on top of that, your diagnosis is going to change. So unfortunately, it's kind of like the more they know you and the longer they see you, because it's not all going to present. It's not like diabetes and, and high blood pressure where like, I'm going to show you on the first day, this is exactly what's going on with my body. So um, you kind of got to roll with it a little bit because for the first, probably I would say at least year, there's chances some of these things could change. Um, and that could go on for a, a little while. Sometimes you see people years later, um, you determine a different diagnosis for them that might have been there all along, but really, really mild, so nobody noticed, or um, you had some new symptoms. And I'll give you an example of a great example of this. We, I had a patient in his seventies um, who probably 
was bipolar his entire life. That that's our assumption, but um, he was bipolar too. And in bipolar two, you get depressed sometimes, but he also had this hypomanic state. So he never became psychotic. He um, would just was like free loving. He lived in his van, traveled all over the country, bounced all around, really didn't need a lot of sleep. But in his 70s, he got put on an antidepressant, which switched him into full bipolar disorder, bipolar one, he became manic. So you could see how somebody, and that was his first hospitalization in his 70s. Well, he just was functioning just well enough um, to go about his day-to-day life. And who knows what is how different his life would have been if his symptoms had been a little bit better controlled for the rest of his life. So it could, it could happen at any point in time. Yeah, I can, I can see that just from, um, I have several family members with mental illness, so I can see how I'm thinking about, cause I have like a wide range of ages. So I can mm-hmm. see that happening. I can, I can see how that would be. Um, I could just see how that could happen. Well, and, <laughs> and then, you know, see, oh, I'm sorry. But I was just going to say, and I can see how, um, um, my family members doctor always encourages us to come to the appointments with them because mm-hmm. they say that that's how, you know, how you're saying that they come in, you know, they present one way this time and then they come in another time and they present a different way. Whereas a family member may be able to tell you, oh no, they're like this all the time. You know, they just didn't show that to you the first time they came. So they always recommend that we come to the appointments with them and just, you know, let them know what we're seeing or how they're doing. And um, it gives them a better indication of what's really going on. I can't even tell you how that is probably one of the most important things that can happen. If your loved one will let you come with them and give what we call collateral. Oh my goodness. It, it means more than, you know, one thing that's really important about psychosis is it is as true to them as we are speaking right now. That is the voices to them. So if I, as a healthcare provider, ask them, you know, what delusion or is there anything abnormal? First of all, it usually doesn't come out in the first couple of minutes of speaking to to the client. Um, But also sometimes people can have delusions that seem pretty darn real or could be, could happen. So you don't really know until a family member says, yeah, that's not, that's not at all true. until you get a sense of what's happening, or like you said, well, they if they do realize that they're hearing or seeing things other people can't, they may not tell you, and they may try to tone it down when they're seeing their their prescriber because they don't want their doses changed or they don't want any additional care. Um, and so, I would say the biggest thing that helps is having collateral. If your if your loved one will let you come in, I can't even tell you how much it means. It, it means yeah. a lot. Yeah, it, it does. And um, it's not always the case. You know, they change their minds all mm-hmm. the time. But um, whenever we can, we do go and provide information. And it, it's been really helpful. Um, one of our loved ones doctors told us at the very beginning that um, we were like, how do we deal with this? How do we, you know, we were just so lost. And he said, make sure they take their medications, make sure they see their therapist make sure they're getting plenty of sleep and make sure that they have a strong family support. And that's, that's what he talked to us about. You know, he said they need to have 
family support and providing as calm as an environment as possible. I mean, life in general is not calm, but mm-hmm. just, you know, a calm environment as possible. And um, just making sure that family support is there as much as the loved one will allow. And that's, and that's always the hard part. Absolutely. So on my Instagram at Caregivers Haven, I asked um, people to send in questions if they, if they, if they had any questions and several people were just excited that we were going to do this, but I did get four questions in addition to people just saying that they were excited. Um, And so the first question is, um, are there any new medications available for schizophrenia? Okay. Um, Currently there's not anything that has come out really recently. I would say, um, Brixalti and Brailler are probably our two newest, um, and those have been out for a little while now. Um, other than that, you know, we, we still do have the long acting injectables, um, that probably in the last 10 years has been a real game changer in my mind, um, for patients who are, are living with mental illness to better keep them on their medications. Um, but that's really, I know there's a lot of research out there. They're looking at different pathways. So right now, most of the medications are based off of dopamine and have some serotonin. And for a while, they've been looking at medications, whether or not they can affect glutamate, um, which is um, can be kind of hard on your brain. So whether or not they can decrease that amount, they've looked at some other products, but we, we don't have anything that's kind of changed the game, I would say, um, at least when it comes to schizophrenia in the, in the last couple of years. Some okay. other disease states we have. In, in depression, we're seeing some changes, but um, not so much with schizophrenia. Okay, and for, the, and for the listeners who may not know, can you explain how the injectables work? Absolutely. So I will tell you, I, I, I have been an advocate of long-acting injectables from since I was a student, I, I think they're real game changers. And the reason why I think they're so important, um, a couple different things. One is we know the study, we have a big study in, in schizophrenia called the Katie study, C-A-T-I-E. And it looked at how long patients were able to stay adherent. And give or take, the average at 18 months was that 70% of patients stopped their medication. So we know the number one thing is patients, which if you have anybody in your life that you love that's mentally ill, you know they stop taking their meds. That's You would know that. You wouldn't even need the study to tell you. But we do have the study that says, in, on average, they do stop their medications. So that was one side of things. The other side of why I love LAIs is every time you have an exacerbation or you develop, when you first develop schizophrenia, that can be really damaging to your brain. And so we want to stop those exacerbations. So when we can get a medication into your system and keep it there at a consistent level, when you're not going to probably have as many side effects because it's not going up and down in levels, but it's super easy. Just once a month, you're going and getting a shot. You don't have to remember every day to take the medication. So Um, most of the long acting injectables are once a month. However, some are every two to three weeks, depending on the medication. And I would say the most commonly used is, and we use in Vegas Sustena, which you can initiate on, on today, get your second dose within a week and then stop oral. Um, and you don't need to be on any medication by mouth. Um, 
aripiprazole, which brand name is Abilify, has two agents. It has um, Maintena and Aristata, which gives you an option of being on that as an injectable. Risperdal has Risperdal Consta, so that's every two weeks. Haldol has a long-acting injectable. So does um, Prolixin. And then the other one is, uh, the newest one is Perseris, which is a Risperdal agent, but is actually a little bit different. The rest of those all go into your muscle. This one goes under your skin. It's called subcutaneous and it's in your, it goes into your belly. Um, and that one is once a month as well. So they're growing the amount of injections we have. The only one that can go a little bit longer, um, you're in Vegas Sustena, you can switch over after you've been on it for four or five months, you can switch over to the Trinza version and that's every three months. And then with the Aristata, mm. some of those are available every other month. Okay, wow. I, I thought they only had 30 day. I didn't realize they had those longer ones. Longer mm. ones. So is it premise that since they don't have to remember to take their medication every day, it's just easier to, for them to go and get, is that why they're, they're more um, stable on those? I think there's two sides of it. One is, yes, absolutely. You're keeping the medication in your system. Um, I mean, I, I know I personally have a medication I have to take every single morning and I hopefully only miss once a week. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's not easy to remember to take a pill every single day. You, you're running out the door late or whatever it may be. So um, definitely, I think that's part of it. The other thing that is really nice is because you're getting the shot every every month, you're having face-to-face -face interaction with your healthcare provider um, every month. So somebody's seeing you and checking in on you, and I think that plays a big role too, um, that they can lay some eyes on you and make sure you're doing okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, the next question they sent in was, should you change the medications after so many years? Like if you've been on the medication for a really long time, should you just change it? You because know, you've been on it for so long. No, I think people, people can be on medications for really, really, really long times. And that's totally fine there. If you're still doing well on the medication, I wouldn't touch it. So um, the only time we get into a little bit of a pickle is I want to say last year, some of the older T drugs, so like thiothixine, thioridazine, we had we had clients coming in and they got their medication every month and we're doing really, really well on it. Um, and then we couldn't get the medication in. So then you might have to change it. But even in this old, even if you're on an older agent that you've been on for 20 years, if it's working for you and you're not having side effects and you're not having breakthrough symptoms, I would say continue to just monitor yourself. You know, as we age, our body does react to medications a little bit different. So you may no longer need the high, that high of a dose over time. But that's something between you and your prescriber, you'll have to have a conversation. How are your symptoms doing? Are you at a point that you want to decrease a little bit? But that's usually when we're more in our elderly age group. Okay. Interesting. Thank you for that. And then this one is similar. Well, no, I guess it's a different question. It, they're asking do you have to take psychiatric meds forever once you're on them? So it depends on what um, diagnosis you have. Typ typically, if you have um, a diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, the answer is yes. You all need to be on medication for the rest of your life. Um, and 
and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think that one of the biggest things we have to understand is mental illness is equivalent to me as a physical illness. So if I had high blood pressure, I'm going to need to be on high blood pressure medication or my cholesterol is off when anything like that. So yes, you may need to be on it for the rest of your life. Now, if you are a person who's experiencing depression or anxiety, the answer may or may not be yes. So it depends on, for instance, if I have depression and I had a very serious um, suicide attempt, I may need to be on it for the rest of my life. However, if I've just had a small bout of depression and been on an agent um, right now, I may only need it for a year. So that will kind of be a conversation between you and your prescriber. And the same with anxiety. Once they can decrease your anxiety, they typically ask that you be on the medication for at least a year. And then at that point in time, you can kind of determine whether or not you continue to stay on it. Thank you. You brought up a good point. Um, I know a lot of times people wonder, do I have to take these meds forever? And you know, it's, it's that stigma. Um, a lot of times the reason they ask that question is because of that stigma. And I just like to remind people, mental illness is just like any other physical illness. Mm -hmm. You know, there are some people who have to take medications for the rest of their lives for a physical Ill illness, just like you just said. And that's okay. It's a medication that is helping you to live your life as best as you can. And it's okay. It's nothing to be embarrassed about, or it's nothing to worry about. Like, you know, you shouldn't be worrying, oh man, you know, do I mm -hmm. have to keep taking this? Um, I just, you know, wish people can be comforted in that, that it's okay if you have to take it for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. uh, the last question that they asked was, um, are there any medications available that are not benzodiazepines or addictive that treat anxiety and severe insomnia? Okay, so I'm going to break those apart into two different answers. So let's talk about okay. anxiety first. And if we were talking in the realm of just general anxiety disorder, I would say in both of these scenarios, we try not to use benzodiazepines. So we'll just start with that. But if we go down the pathway of anxiety disorder, um, and we talk about the term general anxiety disorder, if that's your diagnosis, typically we're going to put on a medication that like an antidepressant, we could put on either an SSRI like um, paroxetine or Paxil or Lexapro, which is escitalopram, or the SNRIs like Effexor and Duloxetine, which are all um, FDA approved for GAD, for general anxiety disorder. That usually is initiated in a, in a patient, and then they can um, hopefully go to some therapy as well. If the anxiety is severe during that period of time, we could put a benzodiazepine on board for four to six weeks because it is gonna take about four to six weeks for that um, anxiety to get a little bit, you know, to decrease and get to a sustainable level. So we could do that, or we could give you another type of agent to kind of help with some breakthrough anxiety. And that would be medications like hydroxyzine, which is called Bisturil. Um, I would say at, at, we're at RUHS, we predominantly use Bisturil um, for a lot of different reasons, um, but, we just kind of like to just take away the chance of even having the risk of somebody becoming dependent upon the benzodiazepine. And, mm -hmm. and there's other options too within anxiety. So we have Buspar, which is a medication that could be alone or with an antidepressant. Um, and then if those antidepressants that I talked about don't work, there's also kind of lower um, 
third, second and third line agents that we could consider like some of the tricyclics like a mipramine. And that's all totally dependent on general anxiety disorder. If you have some of the other anxiety disorders or anxiety-like disorders, um, then other agents may be appropriate. And then when we talk about severe insomnia, so the first thing we do with insomnia, no matter what, is we do cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So not only are we making sure you have good sleep hygiene, and it's some things I could tell you I'm bad at, like, do you look at your phone before you go to bed? Um, is your bed a place that you just sleep in and that's it? There's no TV in your room, all of those kind of things. Then that would be the first thing we do and then do some cognitive behavioral therapy um, to help to see if that helps with the insomnia. And then we go down the pathway of medications. So you, some patients may need benzodiazepines. Typically we don't use those. We can use what we call Z drugs. So those are agents like Ambien, which is Zolpidem, um, Sonata, Lunesta. So those may be options. Um, there's a new class of medications that works on orexin. So what that does, instead of making you tired, it turns off your wake cycle. Um, so there's that option. And then like we talked about, there's some of those antidepressants that kind of can make you a little bit tired that we can use too, like mirtazapine or trazodone. Um, if you look at over-the-counter sleep aids, a lot of those have diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl in it, or something similar called dexalamine. So there's a lot of options for insomnia. Um, but the very first thing, like I said, we want to do is see if we can get you to sleep without any sleep meds. Okay. Very good. All right. Well, I cannot believe that our time is almost up. I have like a, a ton of more questions to ask you, um, but we've already been gone for 37 minutes. This has been oh, wow. awesome. I, I, I really, yeah, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure other caregivers out there will appreciate it. So, um, you know, caregivers, hopefully Dr. Mitchell will come back out and um, discuss some more things on our podcast with us at a later date. I just really appreciate her time. She's really, really busy um, that she works at the mental health facility at um, RUHS and it's a, RUHS is a county facility. So Riverside County is a big county and um, they're really, really busy. So I appreciate it. And so today, um, what I hope that you have gained out of this is just a better understanding of what psychosis is and a better understanding of uh, the different types of medication. And for those of you who um, sent in your questions, thank you for that. Um, Dr. Mitchell answered them really, really well. And if you have more questions, you can send them to me. But I just, um, when, when a family member is first diagnosed, one of the biggest um, causes of stress and fear and anxiety is not understanding the illness and not understanding the medications and how all that works. And so that was my purpose of doing this today. So I, I'm hoping that it decreased some stress in some of you and helped you, um, educated you on some of these uh, medications. That, that was my goal. That was my purpose. Because as a caregiver, when we talk about self-care, there is a huge realm of things of self-care. Self-care is not just, you know, getting my nails done or, or relaxing. That's all a huge part of it. But also a lot of times just understanding, getting educated on the illness or the disease can decrease a lot of your anxiety. And so that was my goal for today. So I hope it helps some of you. And um, Dr. Mitchell, your information is going to really help 
um, a lot of the family members out there. So I really appreciate it. And I appreciate that you, um, that you felt like this was your calling and that you really enjoy it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And I, if there's more questions, you let me know, I will make time. So. Oh, thank you. That's good to know. Um, I will, I will let, uh, the listeners know, and I'll also put that in my Instagram. So thank you. I appreciate it. And, um, yeah, I'll let you know and we can schedule another time. Sounds wonderful. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Okay. Um, can everyone please hold for some important announcements and then I'll be right back. Sandra is a registered nurse and many of her guests are healthcare professionals. However, this is not a professional podcast, nor are we associated with any mental health counseling. Please seek help with the professional provider if needed. You can reach Sandra by listening to the podcast on the Anchor app and leaving a message there. Or you can DM her on Instagram at Caregivers Haven. If you enjoy listening to Caregivers Haven podcast, please favorite, subscribe, or follow on your listening platform. Okay, guys, thank you for listening. And until next time, Caregivers Haven is wishing you peace of mind.